Well, holy shit, I actually managed to do it. After procrastinating for ages, I finally managed to produce an audiobook version of the Lunatic Fringe book. It's currently available on all Amazon sites, audible.com, and shortly on iTunes. And if you're the page-turning type, it's also, of course, still available in Kindle form, paperback, and uh, hardback on Amazon. Ten hours and ten years worth of Blue Skies Magazine's articles, all available to you right fucking now, including a few author's notes and even an apology or two. Enjoy. In a world... Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who's it? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world... Uh, Hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so... Anyway, fuck yeah, pure wild flight, get it down ya, how good. Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously, you moron, we both do. Of course. I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, they'll let you swap it out for another size or model or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot, the Crossfire 3 when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch, the JFX 2 if you're looking to up your new swoop game, the Leia as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast, or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy specifically with wingsuiting in mind, She gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So, the equipment is top-of-the-line kick-ass stuff, as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com, and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. 
The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah! Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void in person, face-to-face. Tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? What's up, man? I'm Ben Milhem Marks. Uh, really appreciate you having me. Excited to be here. Hell yeah. Um, so, what do I do now? Well, I recently resigned as my full-time job as a skydiver. Okay. So, I'm kind of in a, you know, without sounding cliche, it's like you know, midlife crisis, changing my whole life around, <laughs> reinventing myself, got a haircut. Sure. Um, so yeah, man. Nice. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it was kind of funny because I saw you at the drop zone from a distance and uh, would have never known. Somebody's like, yeah, Ben's here. Where's Ben? Because so many people walk straight past me and then I, a couple of people even shook my hand like, nice to meet you. I'm like, we've met <laughs> once or twice. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you said uh, you were doing a great job of hiding in plain sight because you had long dreads. Exactly. And yeah. now you have no more dreads. Yeah. This October would have been five years with the dreadlocks. What was the, the catalyst for getting rid of them? Um, well, I guess when you have dreadlocks, it's like no matter how neat they are and how nicely you keep them, they hold a stereotype. Sure. And you're going to fit into that stereotype sure. regardless. So like if you've got dreadlocks, it means you listen to reggae music, you surf a lot, smoke weed. Yeah. And I pretty much didn't fit any of those stereotypes. Sure. Um, but really the real reason I got rid of them is, um, I just trying to clean up the way I look, I guess. Like sure. I used to always be someone who was quite comfortable being a bit unkempt, having like stains on my shirt, whatever. Sure. I guess I'm growing up a little bit, you know, yeah, fair be- enough. Well, I'm an adult. <laughs> and, and honestly, it, it, uh, I hate to say it cause it's a bit cliche as well, but that all fits quite well into the skydiving community. I mean, you can't spend a full day on the drop zone jumping your ass off without getting dirty and grungy. So it's just kind of an accepted, yeah, yeah of course you got shit on your shirt because you're eating as you're running to the plane and this and that. And of course your hair's a mess because you've been putting helmets on. So it's kind of almost a little bit more acceptable. But as you step outside the skydiving world, that's not quite the same. For sure, for a little, sure. A little bit different. Yeah, plus, I mean, especially with long dreads, you must have gotten hell going through airports and all that shit for... Oh, uh, dude, I, I don't think I went through Dubai airport once without having <laughs> everything searched. Once I got searched twice in one walk through the airport. Really? Because they searched my whole bag, took like half an hour, and then I was walking through and the guy, next guy's like, hey, sir, we have to search you. And I'm like, oh, I've been searched already. He's like, oh, no, 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 come on, come on. We search you again. Oh, my goodness. It, and... it got to the point, I would walk through the airport, I would just walk up to security with my passport and be like, let's get this done, I'm in a hurry, come on. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and I not once ever in 10 years, ever... But I learned what I think was uh, at least my personal secret is I'd always uh, be talking, fake talking on my telephone as I walk through that section because generally 
people don't want to be rude and interrupt somebody that's on the phone. So they'll just, even if they're giving you a sideways glance, they'll let you go through. Wow. I wish I knew that. Yeah, man. It's a, it's a trick. So for everybody listening, just pretend you're on the phone and maybe you'll get away with it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, dude, also one thing I've noticed less now is people would cross the road to try to sell me stuff wherever I was in the world. Like, they'd be like, that guy is a buyer. Beeline. I had one guy stop in the middle of the street and lean out of his car. He's like, hey, hey, you want something? No, bro. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I mean, it's, but you said uh, even shaving your head, uh, there's a different stereotype behind that too. Have you found that any differences there? I guess it's too new. Like I've only had it two, three weeks and I don't have enough muscles or tattoos to be intimidating like a Fair like enough. I want to fight someone. I think I've still got the goofy smile and the funny look. So. Fair enough. Um, but it's such a weird feeling. Like I, it has to be. The first night when I went to sleep, I could just feel the pillow on a tiny part of my head <laughs> where I'm used to feeling the whole head. Right. And every time I'm in the ocean, I come out of the water, I shake my head to get the hair out of the way and nothing happens. So yeah. I remember the first few times I saw my shadow and I'd stop and be like, What's good? There's a round head on the top of that shadow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that doesn't uh, that hasn't happened to me in a very very long time. I have I've not had that problem. So, so skydiving. You uh, you got into skydiving. Um, how long ago? What drew you to it? Uh, what was the initial uh, kick on, on it all? Um, well, I did my first tandem when I was 19, okay. which was in November 2009. So okay, nearly 14 years ago, but totally by accident. I never even had thought about skydiving before. Um, but one of my good friends, he was the packer at the drop zone near my house. Okay. Um, and I used to do a lot of graffiti. I still do, but I was quite actively doing a lot of graffiti and they wanted their van painted. Oh, nice. And my mate said, these guys will provide the paint and give you a free skydive if you go paint their van for them. So I was like, awesome. I'll come in and do that. And it's so funny, man, because I'm, I'm such like a, like rain man or something. Like the, the lady was like, I was like, what do you want me to write? And she's like, oh, I'll write something random. So what did I write? I wrote the word random. It's <laughs> like, so, come on, dude. I could have written any word in the English language. That's great though. Yeah. And I didn't know what the fuck I was doing either. I didn't prime the van, nothing. All right. So a couple of weeks later, that bubbled to shit and they had to scrape it all off and I didn't even know. Oh no. But I went out and did the tandem. Um, and it's funny as well, because the, the boss who owned it, he had like 20,000 jumps, whatever. And his partner had 80, 70 tandems or whatever. I didn't know, but they were like, oh, you can jump with the girl and not have a video, or you can jump with the guy and get a video. And I knew nothing about Skydive. I didn't know sure. about how unexperienced she was or whatever. So I was like, oh, I'll go with the girl. You know, I'm not going to jump with the guy. <laughs> so I jumped with her. And then I really enjoyed it. So I kept coming back to the drop zone every weekend just to hang out. Um, wasn't really working at the time. Right. And my mate, uh, lovely guy, but he was very unreliable. He'd rock up to work hungover or he wouldn't rock up at all. Mm. So eventually they gave me the job. Really? Yeah, they just gave me his job. And then I never took any of the money from it. I'd write down all my pack jobs in a book. And then I used that to pay for my AFF, paid for my first rig. And so you were one of those. You were packing parachutes before you were even a jumper. Yeah. Wow. It's it's a nice uh, like safety blanket when you do your AFF, knowing you've packed a bunch of rigs. Sure. Was I, it uh, was it intimidating when you're first uh, going? Holy shit, man! I'm packing parachutes and I don't even jump, and and I'm I've got people's lives in my hands. Was that weird, or did you just not know enough to think about it? Um, not really. I guess I'm like I'm always I've been super OCD all my life. So like my still to this day my pack jobs are neater than anyone I see. Nice. So I was like I like especially when I saw my boss doing it, he'd just pack it like it's <laughs> like you're five pack. minutes from going to the airport. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um. But no, it was really good. I was fully obsessed. Like I bought packing DVDs and I'd watch stuff on YouTube and oh, wow. I got really into it. And Nice. 
Now, where was this first jump at? Uh, Goa, South Australia. Okay. Okay. Uh, little Cessna drop zone. They only jumped on the weekends. Oh, fair enough. Um, but I ended up full drop zone bum. They had a caravan on the drop zone. So I lived in the drop zone. I just, all I had to do for rent was keep the drop zone clean. Nice. Um, and at that time in my life, when I was 19, I was just making music was the main thing I was doing. So cool. I had like a full music studio in this caravan, about like 2000 vinyls. I had like turntables and everything. <laughs> and then on the weekends, pack parachutes. Nice. Nice. Now, what did the family think about this when you started jumping out of airplanes? Um, well, it's funny because like, I was never the one they worried about because my brothers were like into motocross racing and right. all these intense things. And I was always the kind of the quiet one. And then when I got into skydiving, I think it, I think it freaked them out a bit, but, um, they came and watched my first jump and I think they were pretty, um, yeah, they saw it was pretty safe. I think once, uh, once people get an idea, especially if they're watching a tandem operation that does it all the time, they start to realize, oh, this is not that Fandango crazy bullshit. They're actually taking the time to train people in this and that and the other. And so it's, it, I think that assuages a lot of the panic that some of the families have for sure. For sure. Not just families too. A lot of my friends, they like, it's funny, they really expect you to be the crazy guy outside of skydiving. Right. Like they expect you to do stupid shit all the time, but it's like the opposite. Like you get so obsessed with risk management and like you assess how safe something is. Sure. I'm the last one to jump off of a roof or do something like that. And people are like, come on, man, you're a skydiver. It's like, yeah, and I want to be that for a long time. Don't make me do this stupid shit. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If if nothing else, becoming a, a skydiver taught me how stupid I was as a kid. <laughs> exactly. And to stop doing that shit. Oh, my God, there's so many ways I could have gotten killed. Now at least I'm being safe, you know, jumping out of an airplane. Yeah, well, I had I had to break my dad's uh, heart when uh, I told him I had quit skydiving full time to fly the plane because naturally people assume oh the pilot's much safer when in reality there's a lot more shit can go <laughs> yeah, wrong with exactly. a fucking plane than there is with a parachute. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know? mainly before skydiving as well. One of my phys physical hobbies was parkour, so I was oh, actually nice. like jumping and rolling on concrete and just trashing my body. Sure. And then you go, actually, this is not sustainable for. For yeah, the rest of my life. yeah, no, it'll beat the living shit out of you for <laughs> yeah. sure. So you started packing and you're jumping at the small drop zone, but when did it transition into I'm I'm packing so that I can skydive into I'm gonna be a working skydiver? Um, uh, well, the I was four years in skydiving before I got a tandem rating, um, but about 100, 150 jumps, I started chasing tandems, doing video, mm. and then I got my AFF rating at like 400 jumps. But when I was a young skydiver, I actually was one of those like. I'm never going to throw drugs and, you know, whatever. Sure. I was going all the boogies, paying for free fly coaching and everything. Um, but I guess eventually after, like, in that time, I was still working shitty jobs Monday to Friday. Right. Like, I had so many crappy jobs. <laughs> um, I was a butcher for a while. I was uh, did, like, plastering for the side of a house. Sure. I worked in a, um, worked in a supermarket. So at one point in my life, I was packing on the weekends, like 10, 12 hours. Then I'd go... Get up at, on Monday morning, 5 a.m., drive two hours to go to work at 7 a.m. at a tree lopping company. So they cut down the trees, pull the trees. Yeah. And then I'd finish at 5 at night, drive back down to my hometown, start work at 7 in the supermarket, and work till 12 or 1. And then I'd do that five days a week. And there was one day I was driving to work, and I just started, in, I indicated and started turning, but I hadn't looked. And I just came super close to colliding, nearly killing someone. All right. Got to work and I quit my job. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to 
maybe I'll just make skydiving my jobs way easier. Yeah, way fucking safer. hell. I mean, uh, uh, that grind is is fucking dangerous, man. The people just beat the living sh- shit out of themselves senseless. You know yeah. I mean, to where s- stupid shit like that happens. Dude, I was drinking four of those big rock star energy drinks a day. <laughs> I used to live off of those things. That Now to this day, the smell of rock star turns my uh, stomach. It's like rocket fuel. Yeah, you yeah. could probably run the plane with it. Oh, I'm sure you could. <laughs> I'm sure you could. So you actually, I was just talking to somebody else that got their uh, uh, AFF rating first, which always, um, especially at 400 jumps, that's low jump numbers to go get what is arguably the most ridiculously difficult rating in skydiving. For sure. I only end up doing about 150 AFF jumps, but I even in that, I had some sketchy AFF instructor sure. jumps. Like, because what... what uh, Especially in my hometown, there's not many AFF instructors. Mm. If you're at a big drop zone, they would put the rookie with a seasoned guy and you'd just right. be doing secondaries. But there was one jump where uh, it was me and another instructor who had both like 20 AFF jumps <laughs> each. Like, and we were, we were jumping with this big dude. He was probably 120 kilos. Ooh, Jesus. And he had the problem of having his legs way up his butt, which yeah. made him backslide. backslide and then like he went crazy, on his yeah. back and then he went spinning. So we're chasing him, chasing him. I finally grabbed him by his foot. Just flipped him over and he pitched. And then his uh, pilot shoot went around my camera. And then luckily it ripped off. But then after that, I was like, this is some sketchy (laughs) shit, man. (laughs) That's why it's, I mean, I I don't think I got my AFF rating until I had a couple thousand jumps. And man, oh man, talk about high address. It's either they're amazing students or, oh my God, I'm about to watch someone die. Yeah, it's like you earn your money for... On one jump, you earn your money for the last 99. Yeah. You do nothing on all of them. And then that one, you got to work. You got to use every bit of skill you got on that one jump. For sure. And, and, and it's always those ones that are completely clueless as to just how bad it was because you land and you're freaking out and they've got the big grin on their face. Yeah. That seemed great. <laughs> it's freaky, man. But to AFF over over uh, Chuck and Drogues, I mean, I only got my AFF rating because I had been offered a job uh, jumping at Scott F. Cross Keys, which required you to have all the ratings. Multi-rated, yeah. yeah. Um, so I literally packed all my shit in Vegas, stopped off at Scott F. Arizona to, to the course, and it was a pass or fail or you're fucked, you know, pass that course or you don't have a job to go to. Luckily passed it and then did not use it much at all for the first few years because, I mean, Cross Keys was all about chucking drugs for sure well i'm so out, out of touch with aff now i i uh revalidated it before coming back to dubai the last time but yeah. i hadn't done any in seven eight years it's yeah. like and it's a skill i did some tunnel where you really got to fly close to the person and it's it's hard yeah like to be a good like there's a lot of aff instructors who aren't that great sure <laughs> so did you end up starting working as a jumper at that first drop zone or did you start traveling uh, I actually went to another drop zone, still in the same, like still in my hometown, mm. um, to do my tandem rating. And I only did about 80 jumps in my home, 80 tandems or so in my hometown. And then I went to Queensland in the north of Australia, um, had my first gig there for the winter. And that was awesome. I did 500 tandems in a winter season in Australia, which is like unheard of. Really. Yeah, that's big numbers. Um, and they were jumping strongs. I don't know if you ever jumped strongs. Many, many times. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're pretty ugly. But you get you get used to them. They're quite comfy in the plane and they're... You know, I'm going to say something controversial. I fucking love them in free fall. I love them in free fall. You're head high. And for me, 
I never liked the trapdoor effect of the old vectors or the sigmas. The trapdoor is that one to two seconds of Jesus Christ, what's coming. Yeah. Whereas with a strong, it's a sport rig. As soon as you pull it, you f- you're in line stretch. And there was always something comforting about that. But then you see the video of a strong and realize that you could have another human being crawl between you and the rig because yeah. it's so bent off of your fucking back. And you have to get comfortable with like, as you roll out of the plane, every two or three jumps, you're going to feel your reserve flap hit the back of your head. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. okay, nothing to worry about. Yeah. Or you reach behind you and make sure the two pins are there. Absolutely. But they also had the one other thing that I loved about the strongs was you could uh, um, you could tighten up and cinch up the lower half of the rig so that the weight was uh, on your hips instead of your shoulders. So especially when you're doing a shitload of tandems a day, you're not schlepping that tandem rig off your shoulders all day because you've just tightened the laterals on the container itself. Mm. Um, so th- th- there were things about strongs that I really like, but you're right, they're fucking ugly as hell and free. Yeah, fun. but super. And my when I did my strong indoor, I jumped a set 400. Okay. Which yep. uh big F111 boat that doesn't yep. flare at all. Yeah. Um, but I had a, a hor- I don't know, I had a horrible strong rig that I was jumping because it had a Sigma Drogue on it. Mm. So I didn't even lose the trap, but I still had the, had <laughs> And do people people in Australia do some do some crazy things like they used to do tandems from 6000 feet. Yeah. So a lot of the guys would pull the pr- primary release out in the plane. Yep. They would just have it out and then they jump out and it's a hop and pop. You throw the drogue it all sure. comes out. But then one guy had it where the three ring was flipped through and stuck. So he jumped out and pitched, nothing happened, put his reserve out past it. I was like, mm. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that was always one of the cool things about the emergency procedure ship with a strong is, yeah, if you know you're getting out super low, you just leave your handles in the plane, jump out, and it's a fucking sport rig, which was always kind of nice. Uh, the only time I had a low tandem experience was with a crazy owner at Skydive Las Vegas way back in the day. And we had a tour bus of Japanese that showed up when we had a 4,500 foot ceiling willing to pay just to go up and jump. And we were doing tandems and video from 4,500 feet. Wow. I've done an outside video from six, and that was hard enough. Yeah. No, it was literally insane. It was Drogue pulled the handle, and the video, of course, is literally just watching a hop and pop, you know. But it, it, insane to watch it happen. And, of course, that would never happen these days. This is shit 26 years ago. For sure. Long did, time ago. did you ever do the, like, the technique I was taught was strong as well, is you actually rock your body before you open so that as you're rocking, as your shoulders come high, then you pull the handle so you get less impact on your shoulders when you're coming up. Sure. But sometimes if you fuck it up and you're back on the down again and then you open, you just get destroyed. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of the stuff that was going on when we were doing tandems at Cross Keys, uh, I, I, and I've said it a few times on the podcast before, we were jumping more for us than we were for the students because we were having so damn much fun. Uh, and we had a couple of extremely talented instructors that were doing shit that's just a huge no-no, like leaving the lateral super loose and then getting – off to the side of their student in a stand-up. <laughs> Both legs. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I have beautiful video of, of a, a very experienced tandem instructor literally running in place while he's turning his tandem next to the tandem student. And it's the craziest thing you've ever seen. Again, years and years and years ago. And uh, um, yeah, so we, we, we were pulling a lot of stupid shit back then. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Stuff you can't do these days anymore. So you you end up uh, in Queensland cranking out tandems. So now you're a working skydiver at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's full on at that point. So where does it go from there? Uh, well, then I went to uh, my first overseas job was in Germany. Okay. 
Um, so I went over to Germany. I actually worked at a um, at a place that was notoriously bad. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time, but they basically overhire because so many people quit. Sure. And like we would be, it was near Cologne, and basically we were living at the drop zone. And the guy who owned the drop zone was an airline pilot, loaded with cash. He just did it for the money, and he'd be at home. He'd just check the email and go, "Oh, the weather's crap today. Cancel the whole day." Oh. And it was like 150 tandems a day type. It was a pretty good operation. We'd all be sitting there. We've got no money because we're broke skydivers. So right. Watching the blue sky. Um, so I quit that place. And then I went and worked at a really good porter drop zone in uh, near Munich. Okay. That was super nice. I love jumping from the porter. Nice. Um, especially for tandems. Got that big step. You can just stand up. Yeah. Huck a gainer or whatever out. And... Yeah. Porter's a pretty fun plane for sure. Sure. So you, you got to do a fair amount of traveling, especially coming from a small Cessna drop zone in Australia, and now you're you're bouncing around Europe. But Europe, of course, notoriously is shit weather, so it's short seasons, yeah? Yeah, exactly. And uh, the the place in Germany I was in, they, they referred to it basically as like the Austria of Germany because it was like this little bubble where the worst weather was. <laughs> um, but it was cool. I really enjoyed it. And when I, when you're under 30 in Australia, you can get work visas like, easy you just sure. say i've got enough money to support myself give me the visa right once you're over 30 it gets a bit harder um but after i worked at a few places man after that i worked in the philippines for four months oh nice um probably the well not probably definitely the most beautiful drop zone i've ever worked at like sometimes you'd be in free fall it's really clear you could see like 13 14 different islands all spread out sure go land on the beach don't even have to wear any shoes whatever sure. you want but man they're like i love them but they're so lazy <laughs> like you pull up at the drop zone at nine with the customers, they'd still be asleep, no shirt on on the couch. Right. You know, the plane's still there and then yeah. there's no internet in the hangar. So if the customers don't have cash, you've got to drive them on a scooter to the other side of the island. It takes an hour and a half return just so they can pay. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that actually reminds me a bit of Fiji because I did a, <laughs> I, I did a season in Fiji as well and it was the same thing. It was horribly managed drop zone and and yeah, just not the culture for that kind of thing. And the airport was a twenty minute drive from the office and craziness. Yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> and then so I did that for four months. It was it was like a paid holiday because I was I had a two bedroom apartment on the beach for two hundred fifty bucks a month, ah. like nothing, and I was working. I don't know. I think I did 140 jumps in three months or something. No, like fair that. enough. Not much. Yeah, yeah, so lazy days. Yeah. And then actually I got uh, a job in Japan. Um, it was, I don't know if you know, uh, Osaka. And then there's a place called Shirahama, which is an hour and a half out of Osaka. Okay. So it was this rich dude. He just bought a Cessna, bought two tandem rigs, and he started a drop zone. And I didn't quite know all the details, but my friend hooked me up with the job and I went there. Started jumping there, which was fine, but it was a Cessna 172. Oh. So it was just me and the customer. And yep. then it turns out the pilot didn't speak English. Customers didn't speak English. The ground crew didn't speak English. And afterwards, I realized that there was no safety procedures in place at all. Not oh, even yeah. one. Because it was just like, here's a plane, here's a parachute, let's go. Because you can technically, you don't need to go through a skydiving authority. You can go directly through the FAA if you, or whatever it is in Japan. Right. So... Like, cause we were jumping on this beach. It was like a horseshoe shaped beach and you weren't allowed to swim at this beach cause the current was so bad. Uh, and then it was surrounded by forest. So when you take off from the airport, you got no door on the plane either. You take off from the airport and you just over forest. There's no outs anywhere. There's like one little tennis court near the drop zone. And I remember I was in the plane cause a couple of weeks go by and I'm, I'm starting to think about all this stuff. Like where would I land if I had to jump out and whatever. 
And I found out that they didn't even have communication between the ground and the pilot. Like the pilot could speak to the ground, the ground couldn't speak up. Uh, so I shut down the drop zone. I was like, I'm not jumping here. We're going to, I actually spent two weeks writing an entire safety procedure out. But for me, it's probably where the place I grew the most as an instructor. Because, sure. You're forced into it. Yeah. And I was making the calls. Like if I just said jump, they would jump in lightning because they didn't know. So I was, it was always up to me to be like, the weather's good. The weather's bad. I was spotting. I just got the pilot to run in two miles short, right. face over the drop zone and I'll get out when I'm ready. And I'd never done that before because we get sure. so used to just the pilot says go and you're like, all right. Yeah, yeah for sure. So well, I, I learned so much, man. Uh, yeah. The first drop zone that I worked at, actually my very first drop zone ever had a huge uh, influx of Japanese tourists that would come jump, most of whom did not speak English. And I was always shocked at how trusting someone would be to come meet me, who they don't know, who can't speak their language and they can't speak mine and allow me to put them in a harness with nothing but a couple of really shitty Japanese phrases that tell them to basically be a shrimp out of the airplane. Shrimp is totally the word. Yeah. It works amazing. Shrimp. Yeah. <laughs> be shrimp. Ipizodi, ipizodi, yoshitakuru, all that stuff. That's literally all I knew how to say and all of them so trusting. For me, if I was to go to Japan and couldn't speak the language and someone was going to try and take me on a skydive, go fuck yourself, man. No way in hell. No way. So I applaud the fact that you were able to do that with such a language barrier, especially if your crew didn't even speak English. Yeah, man. It was very, it was very testing. It was also probably because, uh, I mean, it was also like I didn't have, that was the only job I had at the time. <laughs> right. So. You'd take what you got. Yeah. And it was a really good deal. I had a salary, I had a house, I had a car, I had everything. And the guy, the guy was, the boss was really good when I was like, we're going to sort this out before we jump again. He was all for it. Well, that's good. And I charged him a lot. <laughs> well, fair enough. But I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, drop zone owners, at least back in the day that wouldn't have stood for that. They would have just fired you and found somebody that would do it their way. So it's good. It's really good. So uh, where from Japan? I mean, you've done a lot of moving around. For sure. Well, actually, when I was in Japan is when I got the job here in Dubai. Awesome. Um, so I actually got the job through Nitka. Uh, he used to work with me in Adelaide in my hometown. Nitka, that fucking asshole. <laughs> I literally just had Max Mano on the uh, podcast and told him because he's in uh, um, Nitka's drop zone now and told in him. Bovik? He's in Bovik, yeah. And I told him, go find Nitka. Tell him I said he's a fucking asshole and he can't spot an airplane. <laughs> so this is the second podcast in a row I get to say, Nitka, you're a fucking asshole and you don't know how to spot an airplane. Uh, anyway. Such, so. such a funny guy. I just remember like. Being at the beach, and I guess in a, in Australia, everyone at the beach is in board shorts, right? Yeah, yeah. But we're at the beach together, and he rolls his shorts <laughs> right into his underwear, and he's just standing in the shallows, all like, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> fucking Nitka. Yes, yes, that's awesome. So he got you the gig. Well, he he basically was like my connection. You know, go he, between. He put the word, and then, um, yeah, they contacted me, offered me the job, and. It's, it's such a small, small world in skydiving when you get into the core of people working in the sport. I mean, there's – I don't even know how many uh, skydivers there are worldwide now. I want to – what, 50, 60,000 people maybe? Mm. I mean, it's not a huge sport, but working is dramatically less than that. You know, I mean, so it's a tight core, but you don't realize that until you've been in it for a while. For sure, and especially because most people will – go winter, like summer in one half of the world and travel across the world and summer in another half of the world if they can. So Absolutely. a lot of people are moving all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, you get people like Nitka who is, the guy's got an absolutely enormous heart. 
um, and is always willing to try and help people out if you get to know him. Yeah. Because once you know him well enough, you can see past the like the. <laughs> yeah, because he's pretty rough around the edges. And I'm, I'm actually uh, I'm trying to find this because uh, literally right after the uh, um, the podcast I did with Max, I got this message from Nitkal Play It. What's up, yeah, fucking asshole? <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's fucking Max and Amazing. Nitka in Bovec right there, and I love the guy to death. I he he and I hated each other when we first met because he was coaching the accuracy team, trying to tell me how to fly a plane. And by that time, I'm pretty high time pilot. Going, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> and we were a gnat's ass away from getting into a fight, and both of us went. Oh, this is stupid. Let's just be friends. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So you uh, you kind of hit all the rounds and then you end up working in the Middle East of all places. So you've hit all kinds of different cultures along the way. Yeah, man. And like, it's funny because Skydive Dubai was actually a place I'd really wanted to work for a mm. long time because it's like, in in terms of being a working skydiver, it's basically like as good as you can get in terms of jumps and everything. Yeah. Yeah. As, well... I can't get into the U.S. because I just can't get a work visa there. So outside of the U.S., how come? They uh, like Australians. They just don't like you. <laughs> was it the Was it the dreadlocks? Maybe I, maybe I should go now. there now with the with the haircut. Yeah, maybe they'll let me dreadlocks in. anymore. Maybe they'll let you in. <laughs> <laughs> I know lots of Aussies that were uh, chucking drugs over there. Just go be illegal. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when I was in Japan, I was just on tourist visa, but yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, and you wouldn't be the first guy ever in the world that's uh, worked his ass off on a tourist visa. And God knows I did it. For sure. Well, I had a, uh, I had a friend who worked uh, somewhere in Hawaii, and he found a loophole where uh, they, he couldn't be on the books as a skydiver, but he could earn money as a freelance artist. There's like this loophole. So every paycheck, he would draw on a napkin or whatever, just like right. a, a stick figure with big balls or something. You give that to him, they'd be like, okay, we're going to buy this off you for two and a half thousand dollars or whatever. And that was how they got around it. That's nice. I, I mean, well, and you learn to play the game. When I, <laughs> when I got hired at Skydive Cross Keys, um, I, it was the first year they were requiring uh, all the instructors to have an LLC. Um, which for anybody that doesn't know what that is, it's a limited liability company. So basically you're your own company so that if something goes wrong, there's like 18,000 people you got to sue if you want to try and sue somebody for something going wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. And it also lays the responsibility of the instructor's actions on the instructor. But I think I, they're doing that in Australia, something similar, because yeah, it's like a real gray area. Yeah. you're kind of a contractor, but you're not. But exactly. You're... It's, it's becoming quite common around the world to have an LLC. Well, I had no money at the time to be able to set it up. It was expensive to try and get it done, and I had no desire to do it. So I simply went to my bank and asked them to put – because they even made us come up with company names. Like, you have to have a company name. So I came up with a company name, told them what my company name was, went to my bank and asked them if they could put my company name under my personal name on my personal checking account. And they said, sure, no problem. So every time the drop zone wrote out a check to the company name, the bank would still cash it because it was on the check. So I never did get an LLC. I completely... Just kind of fudged it. Yeah, yeah I just fudged it and, and uh, I changed my way around it. Sorry, John, rest in peace, but fuck that. I didn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the gray area in Australia is that like, if you register yourself as a company, you pay your own tax, but then the, the drop zone's not paying you for any, any of the money for the tax. So then you're like, right. 
Well, and they, I mean, there's, there's lots of uh, drop zones that try and get creative with everything from that type of stuff to pay. Like I, I know one drop zone that, uh, uh, none of the instructors worked for the drop zone. Uh, they would actually have the students give money directly to the instructors. So the the student would pay the drop zone for the fee of the gear and the aircraft and all that stuff. But then that student would hand money to the instructor going, here you go, leaving all the responsibility on the instructor to claim their income and all that stuff. And then the drop zone didn't have to worry about 1099s or W-2s or any of that shit because they just had a bunch of subcontractors go talk to them about how much they made. So it was kind of genius. It was really good. And hopefully the instructors are smart enough to, you know, play the game and, and do their taxes at least to some degree because yeah, yeah. they'll get you in trouble pretty quick. So you, you go through all these different cultures and you end up jumping your ass off in the Middle East. How'd you find it? Uh, well, I mean, jumping wise was the first place where I'd been that busy. Mm. Like as you're coming up, especially when you're working, you're always like, oh, I want to do more jumps, make more money. I want to do more jumps, make more money. And then when you get to doing 1,500, 2,000 in a year, you're like, holy shit, I want to have a nap and get a massage, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's one of the only places that jump year-round. I mean, the it gets fucking hot as balls, but you're still jumping year-round. So it's go, go, go. For sure. With a, like, I find from a, I guess from a culture standpoint, like, my whole life was in like a 10 kilometer bubble in Dubai. Like you don't, I don't, for me, Dubai is not the Middle East. Dubai is like this little bubble full of expats where you just go to work and it feels normal. Sure. Like if you go out further into the desert and you actually go stay in a Bedouin or something, you'll really get to experience the culture. Sure. But I, I felt kind of disconnected from it, I guess. Yeah. It's just, again, just a bunch of Brits and Americans and Australians and Russians that are all just doing the same fucking thing in a different location. Yeah. For yeah. sure. So how many jumps have you amassed so far? Uh, right now I'm at just shy of 9,000. So um, a lot of jumps. Yeah. 6,000 of those are tandems. And when I came to Dubai, I had Two and a half thousand or less, Holy less shit. than three. So the, the majority of my jumps have been here. You cranked out a whole bunch of them. <laughs> yeah. So where does the midlife crisis come in? What's uh, uh, what's sparking the change in, uh, in wanting to shift gears? Uh, well, for me, it's just like um, – it's just like the, the, the key to being, I guess, fulfilled is having progress in your life. Sure. And I feel like when you do tandems, once you get to a certain level – tandems especially is an easy one to say – when you do tandems over and over and over, it gets such a routine that you end up feeling like you're just putting your brain in a box and going to work. Sure. And even though it's like, it's fun, it's not, there's no progress. Like it's a, it's, it's a, it's kind of got a low ceiling almost. Cause once you've got the tandem rating, you've got the AF rating, it's like you could become an instructor examiner or you could be a CI or something. Sure. But when you're just going through the motion every day of doing the same jumps, that's when it just starts to grind on you. And then you start thinking like, I want to be using my brain a bit more. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, as far as work goes in the sport, there's only so many avenues to go in skydiving. I mm. mean, you're some type of instructing, some type of rigging, some type of flying, some type of management. That's it. I mean, there really isn't uh, – there's not a whole lot of – there's cutting-edge experimental stuff going on, but that's such a small subset of what's going on, and it still kind of aims towards the same thing, right? For sure. And the people that are like in longevity, the, the people, especially instructors, that are still stoked with it, it's because they're stoked with the rest of the skydiving they're doing. If sure. they're doing cool stuff, cool projects, doing demos, jumping over the Burj Khalifa or whatever – 
that keeps them hype. Like one fun jump will keep them hype for the whole week. Oh, yeah, yeah. But if you lose that, because I made them, like one of the things I made with like a mistake in my mentality, I guess, early on is my my first drops when I was doing tandems, you had to pay for your fun jumps. Mm. But also you would have to like pull yourself off of a work jump to do a fun jump. So at the end of the day, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to get, let's say, $100 for this tandem. I could pull myself off of this jump and pay $20 for a fun jump. In my head, I was like, this fun jump's costing me $120, yeah. so I'm not going to do it, which is not how you should think about it. If you look at it as this jump is for keeping my passion going, keeping me excited sure. about the sport that I love, that's really good. But I straight away early on, I got the mentality of this is just costing me a lot of money, so I was just like, I'm not going to fun jump. I'm going to... sure. <laughs> Keep sure. it in my pocket. So most of your jumps are work jumps. Yeah. Dude, I've like out of 9,000 jumps, like 6,000 are tandems, probably 2,000 plus a video, another 150 AFF, and then I've probably got like 500 hop and pop. So probably if I just look at fun jumps, I've probably got like 1,000 fun jumps. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Our, our careers uh, are pretty paralleled because I was exactly the same way. I started working very, very early on in the sport and it wasn't even that I didn't have a desire to fun jump. It's that I was fucking exhausted at the end of every day because I was fortunate enough to go to very busy drop zones. Yeah. Um, you know, cross keys in its heyday on the weekends, we were doing 25 tandems per instructor a day. Wow. You know, I mean, just go, 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 go. You didn't even, you'd stop for a Snickers bar as you were running to the plane, you know. Yeah. Um, and especially early on, your body's not conditioned to it either. Like when you're a young instructor, it takes it out of you. You're just oh, dead yeah. at the end of the day. Oh, you're absolutely fucking wiped out. And so the idea of going out and making fun jumps was like, what are you, are you kidding me? I can barely stand up, you know. No, I'm, there's not going to be any of that. And it burned me out for sure because I ended up quitting jumping for, Goodness, I, I went a little over four years without making a jump and didn't miss it at all. For sure. For Not sure. even a little bit. I'm like, you know something, I'm good with this. And I was still in the sport and I was still in the community, which in my personal opinion is the biggest draw to skydiving. Um, so I was still in that because I was flying, but the idea of going out and making a jump just flat out didn't even cross my mind for four years. For sure. I just went on holiday for three and a half months. I, I did two jumps and it was only because I was visiting my mate in Sweden. He was like pretty much begged me to, to go do a video for him. So like, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> but I was like, I went to like, I think I was at four different drop zones in my holiday, maybe five. Yeah. Jumped twice at one drop zone. Yeah. Which kind of ties back into it's a, it's an amazing culture and you see incredible people, but it's not necessarily about the jumping. Mm. People, a lot of people don't like to talk about burnout because it's kind of this like taboo thing to talk about. Yeah, I don't, I'm a, I'm a skydiver, but I don't, really don't want to go fucking jump. You, you don't want to say that. There's like this, it's almost like you're, you're insulting everybody that's out jumping their asses off, which I never saw that way. It's just a, I need a fucking break. For sure. And also when you tell you like people that are not skydivers and you're like, if you're like, oh, I don't want to go jumping. And they're like, what do you mean? You got the coolest job in the world. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know. <laughs> There's, uh, yeah. But the coolest job in the world at the end of the day, you still get tired. It's still, still a job. A break. So do you, is it, uh, you're taking a break from working in skydiving, you're walking away from working in skydiving, you're walking away from jumping, or is it you're just going to kind of take it day by day? I'd say day by day. Like I definitely... Um, I'm in no rush to go back to jumping. Like one thing I'm really excited about is having weekends free. I haven't, <laughs> right? had, I haven't had weekends for 14 years <laughs> Right. because I started as a packer. So I was working and when you got friends in the real world that aren't skydivers, their free time is the weekend. Yeah. 
And you'll be like, when I was at my home drops and I'd be twiddling my thumbs Monday to Friday with nothing to do, weekend comes, my friends are like, let's go out, let's go out. And you're like, oh, I'm working. Yeah. So I'm really excited to have that. But I'm sure I'll go back to jumping just on like one or two weekends a month. Sure. Um, and I think that's good. I think especially when you have, like I have quite a lot of jumps now, I'm not, I'm quite comfortable if I only jump a couple of times. Like I'm not sure. going to feel unsafe or whatever. Sure. I think if you were just a weekend warrior and you only had like 200 jumps a year, that's when it can be a problem. Sure. Well, you get to, now you have the opportunity to go be a born again fun jumper, mm. which is what I did, which is great. Um, now I'm, I'm, I've had another little over a year off recovering from surgeries and stuff, and I'm looking forward to being able to jump again, but I've also hit that point, um, especially in regard to currency where it's time to start flying bigger parachutes and, and not be so worried about that kind of stuff, you know? All right. Yeah. No, it looks like I'm back to triple digits Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and go in that direction, which is just fine. Um, cause nobody was ever impressed with my fucking swoops anyway. <laughs> it wasn't that way. Well, it's good to hear that, uh, um, that you're not just fried completely on the sport, but it's just, a I don't take a step back. For sure. And I think one thing that's huge is the way you like talking about tandems, the way you look at the tandem itself is everything. Like if you look at it as a jump, as a physical jump, of course you're going to get sick of it. If you just look at it as oh, I'm doing this exit, I do this in free fall, sure. we'll do the same landing. If you look at it like that, you're going to be over it super quick. Yeah. But if you can take a step back and be like, actually, I'm going to invest everything I have in this customer and their experience, yeah. it's totally different. So if you're not doing it as often, the little things won't matter as much. Like sure. I, I got to a point where like I would, kind of sounds bad to say, but when I was doing it so much, I would just see customers as how much of a pain in the ass they're going to be. Oh yeah. And like, that's, that's an obvious sign you're doing it too much. Cause sure. if you just see someone straight away and you're like, oh, I got another heavy guy. I got a, that could be the coolest dude you've ever met. Sure. But if you've got that mentality where you're just like, oh, another, another heavy guy, it's hot. Yep. That's when it kills it. So for sure. Like I could see myself working one or two weekends a month at a drop zone where I'm not under the pump. I can just meet the customer, shake their hand, say hi, have actually a conversation with them, get to know sure. them. Because I've worked a lot of drop zones, even other than here, where they harness them for you and everything. So right. they're already harnessed up. You just get down, you land, shake their hand with the plane running next to you. You don't even hear what they say. Get in the plane. As soon as you land, see you later in the landing area and you get yep. the next one. Yeah. So you miss all of that connection. You just get the jump. Sure. And the back pain. And yeah, and, <laughs> and yeah, and the brutality on your body. The the cool thing about having more time with those students is you get really good at playing five minute psychologist, right? I mean, you have to learn very quickly uh, how to deal with each individual customer in order to give them the best ride, and in order to. You may have been the same way as I was. I had I took great pride in the fact that I never had a refusal, um, and I did. Never had a refusal, even from some really scared customers, because I figured out what I needed to do to reassure them in whatever way it might be so that they could make the jump. And of course, they always, uh, even if they weren't like, fuck, I'd, I'd love to do that again, at least they were happy that they had the experience, which is very fulfilling. But you're right, when you're just pumping out the numbers, you don't even give a fuck. This guy's uncomfortable on the harness. Sorry, dude, I got to get to the next one. I'm <laughs> pinning this toggle to my hip and we're getting to the ground quick, you know, and it's, that's when you're like, oh yeah, no, this isn't cool. For sure. And I think another thing is, uh, that helps me is like a lot of skydivers in the industry don't have a backup plan. Like they don't have <laughs> right? something else. If they can't do tandems, they got nothing else. So they might get to 40, 50 years old, older. Yep. 
and all they know is tandems. It's all they've done in their life. So they yep. get so over it, but it's like they can't do anything else because they'd have to go back and work at a checkout or something. You know? Yeah, that's it. I mean, uh, that's the one huge drawback to the industry as a whole is there's no 401k plan. And we're physically beating the shit out of ourselves for a lot of years. And it's very easy to find yourself on the wrong side of 35 or 40 years old going, oh, shit, I'm qualified to do nothing else yeah. um, except in the industry, right? Well, dude, the, the, the worst I ever saw, and I shit you not, I was in uh, working in Germany. There was this old crusty tanner master who was so old, they would put the rig in the plane <laughs> for him. I shit you not. He would crunch up the steps get in, put the rig on and his customer would hop in with him. And I'm just like, I do not want to be that guy. And I don't want to be the person jumping with him either. Sure. <laughs> sure. I, I wrote a couple of funny articles way back in the day for Blue Skies Magazine about, yeah, that, that uh, fucking pissed off crusty old instructor that lives in the shitty trailer behind the tiki bar that gets drunk every weekend and wonders why nobody wants to hang out with him. Mm. <laughs> and that was always the nightmare scenario, right? Oh God, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, and one like one thing that also really doesn't help with your attitude towards skydiving, and I'm completely guilty of. I'm talking from my own experience, is as instructors you bond over how shit your customers are. And sure, you're like, oh, I had the worst day. This guy was smelly. This guy spewed. But like, that doesn't help your psychology because if you that mean, that means you're going to focus more on that because you get a little bit of a dopamine hit telling your mate how shit your customer was. Sure, but you, you don't get any good out of the jump doing that. Of course, and it's so hard to not do that. I mean, I can't even count how many times I found myself in the front of the plane on a brutally hot summer day with an entire plane, staff and customers alike that smell like fucking hell. And I had a huge bottle of air freshener in my bag. And I knew every time I sprayed that I'd get a giggle out of people because they were thinking the same thing I was. But you're right. I mean, it's a cheap laugh yeah, that yeah. you're going for. And it's great for a second. But at the end of the day, it's kind of shitty too. And I've thought about that as well. If it's a, a customer that's back there reeking to high heaven, they probably know what's going on. And it doesn't exactly make me a great guy for having done that. For sure. For sure. And yeah, it's like... Uh... Like, I remember having days where I would just try to, like, all the annoyances, I would try to take them and make them as, just enjoy it as much as I can. Like, I'm, sure. like, looking forward to the stupid thing they could do because it's funny. But right. that, that only, that was, like, a short-term solution to sure staying excited about it. But the, yeah. the best days I ever had was just days where I got to work and I was like, I'm going to just invest all of my energy in finding out how cool this person is and right. really getting to know their story. And it changes everything. You don't, it really does. You don't see their weight. You don't see their... You don't smell them as much, whatever. It just changes everything. Sure. Well, and then you you you, you come around to the, the realization that that 180-pound guy that you keep getting no matter what isn't going to take you unstable. It's going to be the 90-pound adorable little girl that uh, is trying to be cute on the way out the door that exactly. puts you on your back. And yeah. so you start to realize, all right, there's a silver lining to all of this. I'll stick with 180 pounds. I don't want the 230-pound guy, uh, but that 180 is fine. <laughs> and again, you're right. You get to kind of invest in making sure they have a good time. Yeah, which is yeah, which is exactly why I want to have a next place I jump is going to be somewhere you can really have the time to sure. chat to them. Sure. And the thing is here, like uh, sometimes it drops on as you do have the time, but you might only have five minutes. And right. then you're like, I want to use that time for me to take a piss and check my phone. Yeah. But if you have 
15 minutes with them, you can do both. You can have a chat to them. You still have time to have a sip of water and have a drink and whatever. For sure. Well, and that's the thing too is, I mean, uh, skydiving nowadays, modern skydiving is fucking big business. You know, if you're at a popular drop zone and you're at a place that people want to jump, it is go, go, go. You know, there's there's no time and, and uh, not a lot of wiggle room in making sure that that machine keeps running smoothly. Uh, so you're right. It can be a, a great recipe for burnout mm. for sure. Uh, a benefit to a place uh, like this is uh, summertime, a lot of the staff get to go and leave for months on end, but a lot of them live a big, fun lifestyle and spend lots of time in the tunnel and spend a lot of money. And so when uh, the time to go on vacation rolls around, it just means they're going to go work at another drop zone. For sure. <laughs> and one, one thing that happened to me as well is I found like not even just spending a lot on tunnel, but I was spending a lot on my just shit in my life just to give myself some like because I, I was I worked way too much sure. I, I worked six days a week Oof. when I started here I worked seven days a week Oof. and I would That's not recommend much. that to everyone yeah. anyone but I was working six days a week getting burnt out doing jumping so much so I'd go spend my money on like like oh, I'm earning lots of money I'm gonna go buy a fancy dinner or whatever yep you know 5,000 dirhams a month on food later. Sure. And then you're like, oh, I got no money for summer now. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to spend my summer living like a peasant after earning more money than I've ever earned in my life. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, no, no. It it, it can be exactly that. I was lucky that uh, um, maybe halfway through my time in the sport, I learned quite quickly that uh, uh, as soon as the engines have stopped running and the props aren't spinning anymore, I'm gone. I'm out of there. Um, and I would socialize, but never to a huge degree. And I have great friends at the drop zone, but I pick and choose when I'm going to socialize. And the bonfire became uh, something I almost never saw simply because I spent so much time at work that I valued that time at home with people that didn't jump and people that didn't know anything about the industry. Because uh, then I get to, again, enjoy the industry even more because I didn't just spend all my off time doing exactly what I do when I'm at work as well. Yeah, yeah. So having that balance is important. For sure. And that was a big thing for me was realizing like, okay, I want to have something else in my life, whatever it is that I can fall back on. And because now if, if you're working a job that you enjoy and then you go do tandems on the weekend, you love it. Oh yeah. Because it is fun. Absolutely. And you, you're giving someone an amazing time. But if it's all you're doing, you rely on it and you're just focused on the shit in it, it's going to suck. For sure. So what's next? Well, I'm actually, uh, I went through a few different phases because initially, uh, when I, when I decided to resign, I actually hadn't thought of what I was going to do next. Hmm. And my initial idea was like, okay, I need a job, you know, quote, quote unquote job. So I was like, what, what do I like doing? I'm really into coffee. So I was hmm. like, okay, I'm going to invest all my time in coffee. I started doing my diploma in coffee. Um, but I realized I was still thinking under the premise of needing to get a job and work for someone else. Sure. But I actually started thinking about uh, getting into the, they call it like being a knowledge broker, which is where you take what you know, put it into a course or a podcast, whatever, and sell it online. Sure. Um, so I'm actually going to go back to Australia in a week and I'm going to invest probably the next year just into putting, seeing if I can really make something out of nice putting what I know online. And nice. if it doesn't work, I can still go back to doing coffee. I can still go back to tandems. I can sure. still go back to whatever. Well, that's the benefit too is, I mean, once you're established in this sport, there's a life for you. As long as you can do the job, mm. you've got a job, which is nice. Well, when if, if you're going to do a podcast, I'll give you all the ways not to fuck it up. <laughs> I've got lots of, uh, lots of uh, advice on how not to do shit if you... <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, you'll, you'll definitely be getting some messages from me for good, sure. Good, good, good. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's nice, and it's. Uh, I'm sure you found as much as I have. It's very. It's nice to be able to pass on the experiences, positive and negative, because they're all learning experiences, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we talked uh, before we even did the podcast. You're like. Just so you know, this isn't all sunshiny because I'm actually retiring and I'm kind of burned out. And my response was, that's exactly what I want to hear about because it's not all sunshiny. It's not all, a, oh, my God, my life is so wonderful. Sometimes you're like, all right, fuck. <laughs> mm. I need to do something a little different. And f- especially for the newer skydivers that are listening, that's something they should hear. Like, it's possible to get burned out doing something you absolutely love doing. You, it, it can happen and they should be aware of it. For sure. And especially like whenever you turn any of your hobbies into a job, it can ring regardless of what you could be an artist. And then all of a sudden you have to do art for someone else, what they want. Or oh, you yeah. could be whatever the job is. You can get burned out in any career. Absolutely. Well, and again, uh, another parallel between you and I is I've just retired as well. Um, far before I had to stop flying an airplane and it's not that I don't love flying airplanes and not that I don't love flying jumpers. It's just time. Um, you know, family circumstances and all that come around and, and things changed a little bit. And I finally just went, yeah, all right, time for the next, let's, let's move on to the next one. And now I still, um, now I get to sit in the podcast studio even more and talk more shit about skydiving and have fun with skydivers. And that's awesome, man. It's, and it's so good that you're in a position where you can do that. Yes. Like you're not just pissing all your money up the wall every weekend and you get 10 years past when you should have stopped doing whatever you're doing. Right. Well, I was lucky in that uh, before I ever started making halfway decent money uh, in the skydiving industry, I'd already lived in Vegas for way too many years and blown all my money living in a place like Las Vegas. So by the time I left there, it was, uh, all right, I don't need to do any of that shit. It's fine. So advice that you have, because again, you're in a bit of a unique experience. Most of the the uh, jumpers that I have uh, um, on the podcast are in the middle of their heyday and love and life. Um, you're stepping back from it all. So what advice do you give to people that might be about where you're at dealing with burnout or potential burnout or for the young ones that are getting into the sport thinking, I want to make a life out of this. I don't want to end up in a position where I'm fried. Uh, what advice do you give to those groups? So starting with people that are like <clears throat> doing a lot of tandems or doing a lot of work in the industry and they're getting really burnt out from it. Like the first thing is actually just admitting that you're over it. Like so mm. many people will just push through and just because they don't think there's anything else. So if you can really take, take a month off, take two months off, take six months off, whatever, even if you have to, if you don't have any money, just say, I want to take a break from this. I'm going to save my money this season to have a break. Sure. Or like think about other things that you're interested in and invest time in that so that you've got so- something else to spice your life up. Sure. Cause you either need something external of work jumping to keep you excited or you need to take a break from it. And usually the mentality is if you don't have anything to fall back on, you can't take a break. So yeah, yeah. yeah, put your effort into something else. Nice. Get excited about that and then come back to tandems later if you have to. Nice. Nice. Now, how about the kids that are just starting out? Uh, my biggest advice, like if I could tell my young self as a skydiver would be like, never monetize, like don't monetize fun jumps. And what I mean by that is like, keep paying for it even though because you have the mentality i'm jumping a lot i'm in the plane more i'm jumping a lot but you're not doing the jumps you want to do right always keep the fun jumps doesn't matter if you have to pay full price for them keep that fire alive sure keep going to boogies keep yeah keep having goals in skydiving i stopped having fun jump goals so long ago and that's 
yeah, I turned my passion into my job, lost the passion for it, and that's a quite easy recipe. Yeah, that's kind of what happened to me. I mean, uh, fuck, I've got, I don't know, a little over 12,000 jumps, and I'm still the guy that's most likely to fuck up the formation, <laughs> which now, having been a, become a born-again fun jumper, is actually really entertaining because I've got so much left to learn in this sport that I've been in for 27 years. Yeah. Um, but... There's working in skydiving, chuck and drogues, and even doing AFF, which gives you incredible flying skills in a really off-the-wall way, but it doesn't teach you how to fly head down in a beautiful formation. It's not teaching mm. you flocking stuff and all that. That's shit that you need to have that passion for and go out and enjoy. And if you turn it all into, I just got to jump, even if that's chuck and drogues all day long, then you might have a problem with it. Mm. Well, I still have two, like... Like after 14 years in skydiving, I've still never swooped the pond, not even once. <laughs> and I can't like, I can't fly his head down for a whole jump. Wow. So those two things I'm going to work on. Not wild. Yeah. It's crazy, right? I mean, you, if you or I tell anybody on the street, we've got that many thousands of skydives or, or even most um, up jumpers, active skydivers, you tell them you've got nine, 10, 12,000 skydives. They're like, oh, this guy must be a badass at something. Yeah, I'm a badass at chucking drogues. <laughs> I'm a fucking great tandem instructor. But yeah, you can, with 300 skydives, you can probably outfly me. Yeah. Which is fun, but yeah. <laughs> well, Ben, I wish you nothing but luck on the next part of the journey, man. I really, uh, I, I want to hear how things go and, and keep up on your progress. And, and it's it's nice to see that the burnout isn't a fuck skydiving burnout. It's just a, I need to take a step back and, and rekindle that passion for it, mm -hmm. which is really cool. Awesome, man. Very, very cool. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for having me, man. It's been ben, great. It's been great, man. Blue skies. Thank you. And there you have it, another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void brought to you as always by, and say it with me, fuck yeah, NZ Aerosports. Head to nzaerosports.com. By Pussfoot. That's right, head to Pussfoot.com, the Extreme Sports Collective, and check out everything they've got to offer. By SummitParachuteSystems.com. Jarrett Martin and the family cranking out amazing pilot rigs, as well as incredible rigging courses. And now joining the Lunatic team, it's the one and only Tony Suits. You know them, you love them. Head to TonySuit.com. Check out all the amazing standards, as well as the new incredible signature line they've got going on. And as for us, the Lunatic Fringe is now on YouTube. That's right, you're going to have the chance to put faces to the audio by heading to YouTube.com and looking up the Lunatic Fringe Podcast. It's easy. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, check out all the amazing videos from the previous guests that we've had, as well as new and upcoming interviews on video. As always, I am the fucking pilot. Head to thefuckingpilot.net or theprincesspilot.com. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time around.
Thank you.